Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests, Ajay Agarwal and Kevin Zhang, both of Bain Capital Ventures. Ajay, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So uh, why don't we zoom out by, by way of introduction. Uh, Ajay, why don't we start with you? Uh, where is your investment focus uh, today at uh, BCV and how has that, uh, that evolved over time? And then we'll get to you, Kevin. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've been at Bain now 17 years and um, I would say the part that's been constant is... I invest primarily in software companies, um, and I invest primarily at Seed and Series A. And that's really been true both for the 15 years prior to Bain when I've been in startups and, and, and working on companies. It's primarily been early stage software companies. And it's true certainly for the last 17 years, uh, at Bain. And, you know, I think one of the themes we'll talk about is just how software has changed. And, you know, clearly the world moved from, you know, where, when I grew up in software, the on-prem world and client server and all of those trends in the 90s that fueled kind of the first wave of enterprise software. And, you know, this last 20 years has been about the cloud. But I think there have been some other, you know, interesting changes as well. And we'll talk about how the nature of distribution of software companies has dramatically changed, the rise of, you know, bottoms-up software. Um, you know, the company I was with, Trilogy Software, we were a classic, top-down, big deal you know, sell the dream to, you know, a, a C-level executive and try and walk out the door with five or $10 million. And that was a great model, particularly it was a great model when you got all the money up front. I mean, that was the beauty of, you know, those top-down perpetual license deals. But in the world of SaaS, where you don't get your money up front, you get your money over time, it makes that top-down two-year sales cycle that much harder because at the end of that two years, you're going to get some money, but it's going to take you 10 more years to get all the money that you would have gotten in the in the prior era and i think the that combined with the fact that you know the the cloud makes software so much easier to consume has led to this explosion in bottoms of software so kevin and i will talk more about that as we go along but that's the way to think about my investment focus uh, two other sub themes are supply chain and industrial automation. So, you know, had the benefit early in my career to invest in Kiva Systems, one of the pioneers in the world of robotics, warehouse automation. So that has been, you know, uh, an area that continues to be of interest. And we've made a number of recent investments uh, in that arena that we'll talk about. And then, you know, I think uh, the third area that we'll chat a little bit about is just thinking about, you know, powering the rest of the economies. We think about beyond information workers and all the software and tools being built, built here in Silicon Valley for information workers, what about the software and solutions needed for the rest of the economy? And we'll, we'll, you know, share some thoughts uh, there as well. Totally. Kevin, how, how, do you, how do you think about scoping your, your investment focus? And then we'll get into some of these ideas. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, Ajahn and I work very closely. I think the reality is there is a lot of business software to cover between yeah. two partners, um, you know, westward to San Francisco and eastward to New York. And so I think we spent a lot of time working together on uh, sort of our, our, our market opportunities. I think when I think about some of the daylight kind of between where Audrey focuses and where I spend some of my time, I think probably some of the themes would be you know, incorporation of financial technology um, into business software, which is a trend we're seeing. Happy to chat more about that. And my personal background 
is in fintech, and so it's certainly lending is a space that I've spent a lot of time in, and with the both customers and the technology providers. Um, I think that um, another is sort of the future of work. You know, I've, in addition to a lot of our business software investments, I've been involved in our investments in uh, Winolo and Lime, both of whom kind of touch on contract labor, how work is changing for um, blue-collar roles that aren't tied to a desk. Um, and that's probably another area that I spend some time thinking about. Yeah. So, Aji, let's get into how uh, the space uh, has evolved uh, in terms of where you, what types of bets you've, you've made or, or been interested in making and, and where that, what that means going forward. Absolutely. And, and Kevin, jump in here because this is you're really a tag team uh, in terms of the two of us spend a lot of this time together. But what's interesting, and I think at, at Bain Capital Ventures, our first exposure to this notion of bottoms up, high velocity software, you know, was you know, really uh, about, um, you know, more than 15 years ago, uh, a company called SolarWinds. And it was a company that, you know, my partner, Ben, Lott, ben Nye, led for us. And you know, it was a, a company that was selling network management software and, and network management software is you think of as the classic top down HP salesperson, computer associates selling to the CIO. And this company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with literally no salespeople, had tens of millions of ARR selling this network management software. And the way they built it was through this community. They had this community website where if you were a network administrator inside a large company, this is the place you went to to get tips and content about uh, managing your network. And they had a piece of software that you could swipe your credit card for under a thousand bucks and start using it. They literally had no salespeople. They had this uptake and they had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of large companies where one or two or three network uh, managers were using the software. And so when we found this company, we were astonished that a software like this, and again, remember, this is now 15 years ago, could be sold in this bottoms-up manner. And through our networking context, you know, we, we called up the CIO of Staples. And we said, have you heard of SolarWinds? And he said, I've not heard of it. And, he, and we said, did you know that a dozen of your network managers use the software to manage Staples' network? And you know, he had absolutely flabbergasted. He said, that cannot be true. There's no chance. And I think, you know, SolarWinds went on to, you know, be a public company worth $6 billion. And, and I think in many ways was one of the early pioneers in this world of, you know, bottoms up. And yes, eventually you may need to, you know, layer on an enterprise motion where salespeople are going out, uh, and talking to the C-suite. But when they're going out and talking to the C-suite, they can say, you're already using our software. It's already being used. Now we can sell you access control and security and, you know, an enterprise license agreement and all the things you CIO or CEO or CMO care about, but we don't have to convince you to start using the software. And so I think we've seen a series of companies throughout our portfolio, you know, SolarWinds, LinkedIn, SurveyMonkey, that were all built on this kind of model. But I think what's happened is it's really reached a tipping point. And, and just like there was this tipping point with, you know, on-prem and, and client server to cloud, you're now seeing this tipping point with bottoms-up companies. And that, I think, has really interesting implications, not only for the startups we are funding, the actual software companies that we're funding, but also the infrastructure and the set of tools those companies need, and as well as the buyers of software need in order to, to you know, manage you know, this, this new world order that we're in. And so I think that's what's exciting for us, that there are a whole set of ecosystem opportunities that we see with this sea change and how 
software is bought and sold. It also means the kind of expertise that we as a venture firm need to be able to offer founders is very different, you know, than the expertise of, you know, how do you sell a big deal, which I think still exists and is still valuable. And we have plenty of companies that value that and, and take advantage of that. But there's this new skill set that also needs to be you know, built and, and uh, a set of value add that we have to be able to deliver to our founders. So, yeah, and I think, you know, I think certainly we have the benefit of being of having worked with some phenomenal bottom up companies over the past 15 years that, you know, Audrey, having been there 15 years, knows better than I, uh, you know, DocuSign and SendGrid and SurveyMonkey and, and, and Reich and other names. And I, I think part of the, the perspective that I bring to it is, you know, having worked at a young startup uh, in the last five or 10 years. You know, and been part of a, I was at a, a coastal backed fintech company called Fundera. And, you know, I remember sort of like, you know, we were 12, 15, 20 people in sort of the back corner of some office we subleased in midtown Manhattan. And it was interesting because it just wasn't an environment where, um, you know, we were being force fed software. You know, it was an environment where we were all trying to be productive and we're each finding tools that made the most sense for us. And, you know, every once in a while we would have to buy like, you know, the industry standard you know, CIO approved software and sales and marketing or CRM. And we would, we would, you know, unpack these things and set them up in a, in a long and arduous process. And then, you know, I just think a lot of us were just incredulous, you know, having used easy to use consumer grade stuff like a MailChimp or, you know, for email or WooFoo for forms and then have to go to some of these software. And we're like, why do we have to click so much? And why are there so many menus? And why are things so hard to find, hard to learn? And, and I think that you know, that perspective seems to permeate the industry. Now people are designing tools that you know are really user user led. I think the user now has more power than ever in making these decisions, and I think users are increasingly you know falling in love, not falling in line uh, when it comes to technology. Um, I think that is just an exciting opportunity. I, it, one way, one lens we also put on this is you know I think some of the recent data has come out around. You know, seed investing shifting from consumer majority to enterprise majority. I think one of the interesting ways to think about this is that enterprise is becoming more consumer. You know, that consumers are adopting business level tools like superhuman and businesses are adopting consumer level tools like yeah. Dropbox. Um, I think that creates a whole new paradigm how to build these. Yeah. Companies. And I, well, I think it's, it's it, you know, as Kevin mentions, sort of the power of the individual user now dictating the software they want to use. It reminds me. You know, the early days when I was a trilogy, I was employee number 18. And, you know, I, I remember the founder who's a brilliant entrepreneur, Joe, said, customer success doesn't matter. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, that goes against everything you learn in your whole life about business that you want to delight your customers. He, he said, how many customers like SAP? And he said, none, zero. They all hate SAP. Yet it's the most, at the time, the most valuable software company on the planet. And so he said, it doesn't matter. And, and, what matters is, you know, how good are we at selling the software? And, you know, the software we had was good. It wasn't like it was bad software. But the reality is it didn't really matter. And, and you know, we were uh, at Bain Early Investors in, in Gainsight. And, you know, part of the reason we invested in Gainsight when they had a few hundred K of revenue was this idea that, you know, both the combination of moving to a SaaS model where you basically have to re-earn your your payday essentially every month or every quarter, every year. And if the customer doesn't like it, you know, they can terminate the contract. But also this, this dynamic that Kevin mentioned, which is software's permeated the life of most individuals on the yeah. planet. So whether, whether you're in technology or not, you're probably ordering stuff online. Yeah. You know, you're probably 
ordering an Uber or a Lyft, um, you know, in, 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 you know, some portion of your, uh, of your daily life or, or yearly life. And so you're getting exposed in, in a way that wasn't true, you know, 20 years ago. And so then you come into work and you wonder what's going on here. You know, we, we have this great company in transportation called Forkites where, you know, the, the simple way to express their value proposition is they help companies like Kraft and British Petroleum know where their trucks are and know if their truck is getting to their customer on time. And the way the founder, Matt, describes it is, we all know when our package is coming from Amazon. <laughs> you know, and then you go to work and you're like, we have no idea where our truck is. And Walmart's calling and they want to know where it is. And why can't this be just as easy? So I think this confluence of SaaS and cloud, plus uh, the fact that users are now becoming much more familiar with technology and what great software can be, I think that that has led to you know this wave uh, that's happening in a more meaningful way. Again, SolarWinds and SurveyMonkey and LinkedIn were from the last era, and they were they were the pioneers, but it's now become mainstream. Yeah, and what's the most precise reason for why the pivot to SaaS happened when it happened? It didn't happen way sooner. Well, I think the biggest, probably the biggest technology, you know, the biggest reason from a technology standpoint was the fact that cloud made it possible to distribute software and distribute, more importantly, updates in a way that did not require someone to show up on site. Yeah. And so the, the challenge in the on-prem world is you had to send someone on site you know, in order to update the software. I mean, you think about a migration in our world, a Trilogy or Oracle or SAP, that was a process and, and, and um, a, a real effort to make that happen. And so I think that combined with the fact that for new entrants in established categories, it was the only way you could disrupt the existing stack. So if I'm Salesforce.com and I want to, I want to disrupt Siebel, which is the incumbent and people have invested, you know, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in this infrastructure, you know, me showing up and saying, we have a better product switch and that hundred million dollars you spent, you know, you basically have to, you know, throw it away. And you have to spend that, spend that same amount with me. And, and instead, what his pitch was, you know, you spent $100 million on Siebel. You're now spending a couple million dollars a year just to maintain it. You know, the 20% that you pay in, in maintenance and services, you're paying to, to Siebel. So just take that $2 million a year and give that to us. Right. And give that to us on an annual basis. So, in fact, it's no incremental cost to you. And over time, you can completely sunset you know, that complicated system and you can move on to our system. So it was in some ways a financial innovation that allowed those new entrants, you know, in the early 2000s, the, the first cloud companies to really disrupt uh, the, the incumbents. Now, I think the downstream implication has been that once these companies get public, you know, financially, it's a way better model. Yeah. You know, uh, the scariest thing, I ran go-to-market at Trilogy, and the scariest thing is each year we started at zero. You know, so we got our, our peak year is $300 million in revenue. Imagine we started that year at zero, you know, and you compare that to a SaaS company that's doing $300 million in revenue. They probably started the year at 240 or yeah. 250, you know, and so it's a fundamentally different model. And then you layer on companies like SendGrid and, and DocuSign where their net dollar retention is north of 100, 100%, you know, in SendGrid's case, you know, 117, 118%. So not only... Do you start at 100%? You actually start at 118%, you know, because those existing customers are going to grow with really no effort on the part of the company. So you could literally send walk into the year 
fire the whole company yeah. and revenues would grow 18 percent wow. you know um, so I think a bunch of reasons really fed this wave and 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 drove both you know certainly cloud was a technology wave but the business wave of SaaS right. and sim on a technology wave for a second why wasn't that 10 years before like what really enabled that just to zoom out even higher you know I was um, I was in a car on the way to the airport in a snowstorm you, you were there for this board meeting Ajay with someone who was um, early at free markets in Kiva and one of the things he was telling me and I always love hearing stories about you know the, the first uh, dot com era because I feel like there are many lessons to be learned one of the things he's, he described ASP as an early entrant as sort of analogous to SaaS do you think there are any lessons from that or can you describe a little bit more about your lessons learned on that well I think that the starting with the technology piece, I think clearly a huge part of the shift has been, you know, the uh, ubiquity and the cost reduction of bandwidth and, and compute, you know. And, and so if you think about the bandwidth that existed in the 90s, the notion of doing a software update remotely was just impossible. You know, just the sheer, you know, bandwidth cost uh, associated with that made it, you know, impossible. And so I think that certainly those two dynamics i think drove you know a huge part of you know that change and i think the other piece was that you know i think asp is a good example of this that typically the first examples when you have a new technology wave are essentially you know the old model applied to the new technology it's it's a little bit you know our partner matt who's got a great discussion around you know the world of embedded fintech says it's a little bit like radio on TV. You know, the early TV shows were essentially radio programs, except you saw the person reading you know, the radio script. And um, you know, the early dot-coms were essentially magazines that were now online. You know? And so to take the old analog format and just port it over. And ASPs were like that. There basically was, let, let's take this traditional on-prem software and let's host it. But the software itself was not architected for the cloud. And so as you think about concepts that, you know, uh, that we now take as, you know, granted like multi-tenant architecture, microservices architecture, um, the things that allow multiple companies to consume the same code base, the things that allow updates to be delivered on a daily, weekly basis, those things just weren't there architecturally as you think about, you know, that world of the ASP. And so it was a classic case of right technology, wrong implementation, Let's just take an on-prem piece of software. Let's stick it on a server and let's stick that server in the cloud. You're, you aren't getting any of the transformational benefits. It's only the next wave where you really see the transformational benefits. So how, how do you subdivide the, the world today if you were to make sort of a market map or the different areas w- within sort of SaaS or, or enterprise that, that you invest in or, or, or look into? How do you, how do you uh, make sense of the landscape? Um, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, there's a number of frameworks that... Um, we've used over time to think about it. I mean, certainly one way to think about it is in the world where a C-level executive had to be the budget sponsor, then you would just look at each C-level executive and what they're buying. Um, you know, CMO was a very was a very popular topic. Um, perhaps five years, maybe ten years ago. That'd be one way to think about it. So you can subdivide the world by sort of like you know CMO, COO, CFO, software, and there's sort of big you know billion dollar companies built in each of those categories. Another way we think about it today is we think about this explosion in productivity software is 
is that, is that I think Microsoft Office has done a pretty good job of enumerating the types of productivity there are. You know, so there is word for word processing. You know, you have tools like uh, a Notion or Google Docs that might roll up into that category. You have tools like PowerPoint where Pitch might roll up into that. You might have you have Excel where there's sort of an explosion of products like Airtable or Dash Dash or all these players who are doing different aspects of what Excel does today. I mean, you can certainly imagine a world where there is a SaaS provider for every tab of Excel uh, or even button, every button in Excel. Um, that would be another way we think about it. But I, there's a number of frameworks to subdivide the world. I yeah, mean, it, well, I, I mean, I think it, it actually, interestingly enough, you know, lines up with this discussion we've been having about top-down and bottoms-up bottoms because I think in the, in the top-down world, you know, a very simple way to think about things was by business function. You know, let's create software that solves problems in finance. Let's create software that solves problems in sales and sales enablement. Let's create software that helps HR or the developer or DevOps or IT. And that was, you think about all the maps and the, you know, the crazy Lumascapes and the MarTech maps and everything else. There were typically these functional views. And because that's how software was sold. And what's interesting is, you know, take a great category. You know, we, 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 uh, we're fortunate to back one of the winners, a company called Reich, which is, you know, now a, a nine figure ARR company, you know, leader in their space. You know, there is no functional owner for project management. And, and, and as such, it historically in the top down world was a crappy category. You know, the, there were no big companies creating project management you know, circa 1999, um, because there's no function of project management. You know, it's, it's something that's consumed by, you know, people across the organization. So I think the, the mindset shift that's taken place is now thinking more about types of users. So let me think about information workers. Let me think about gig workers. Let me think about, you know, business analysts that are technical. Let me think about business analysts that don't know SQL. And so it's really more about, you know, user communities in many ways and thinking about what is their daily workflow? Where are they having to do things that are manual or difficult uh, that can be automated? How are they using rudimentary tools like spreadsheets, you know, to handle tasks that are better served in, you know, dedicated application software? And so I think that's led to this explosion of companies. And Reich's a good example of it where it's used by, you know, information workers across marketing and project management and and services and and developers to manage you know an array of, of projects and it's it's you know created this this large company and so I think that's an interesting change that's occurred where I would say a decade ago it was a, a very functional view and now we take much more of a community and user framework view when we think about spaces that we think are are underserved Totally. Let's talk about some of the direct impacts um, that are emerging from how uh, business software is is changing. Uh, you mentioned in terms of what you look for in founders around more, more expertise in, in certain areas. Maybe let's talk about uh, how that uh, changes uh, hiring uh, priorities in an organization, and then we get into metrics. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, in the world of top down, you know, it, it was typically a founding team had some combination of you know technology capabilities as well as you know, a co-founder that was very outbound oriented, you know, and, and selling the story was as much uh, as important as building the software. I think that as we think about this bottoms up world, the founders uh, that we're backing tend to, you know, buy us a little more technical, uh, definitely very product oriented. And I would say that they're, they're all 
across the board, very compelling talents and individuals. But I would say they're, if you had to rate them purely on their outbound selling skills, you'd get a, a pretty broad range of capabilities and some incredibly talented, incredibly successful founders of big companies who, under the screen of the old world of top-down, would not be folks that would ordinarily you know, get the kind of frothy fundraises that you're seeing today. And so I think that's been a big shift because by definition, you don't necessarily, you know, necessarily need to, or you also in some ways don't want to rely on the crutch of having someone who's a compelling salesperson be part of the founding team. Cause that can oftentimes lead to, you know, early metrics of success that may not be scalable or repeatable. I think the other thing it's done is it also makes us a little bit more flexible on where the founding team is located, or even if they're all located in the same place. And so as you think about these trends of companies being started all over the planet, companies being you know distributed or remote, I would say when I entered the venture business, you would, you know, the likelihood we'd fund something, you know, based in Europe or in, in Asia or in Australia, the likelihood we'd fund something where the team wasn't all together, you know, it was pretty much zero, yeah. you know, back then. And now it feels very much the norm. And so I think those are some of the things that we've seen that, that have changed as we think about the types of founders we're backing, the things we look for in, in startups. I think and the one piece I tack on to that, which I think is, is kind of interesting, is also that you're seeing more founders without the 30 years of industry experience, you know, where, you know, having a deep set of relationships with C-level executives across the industry is 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 less necessary in a world where you can sell to the user who maybe a few levels below those contacts. Yeah. Um, I, I think when it comes to hiring, I think some interesting trends we see are one in how people prioritize their hires. I think to Ajay's point, for a more traditional SaaS company, um, you've probably seen a more even mix of engineering and sales early on. And by sales, generally like yeah. a very outbound sort of um, you know C level targeted um, sales role. Whereas I think with bottom-up companies, we often find the first 15 hires, you know, maybe 80% engineering, maybe, you know, and, yeah. and tends to be relatively product and front-end oriented engineering in some ways that are really focused on the user experience. I think we're also seeing a slightly different emphasis in terms of, you know, skill sets and titles. A lot of these companies have a different go-to-market model that isn't outbound oriented. They yeah. have um, a community oriented model, for example. So they might have developer outreach or they might have a community building person around their target user base or user community. You know, the, the product management is a little bit less let's go to these executives and, and spend time with them and figure out the roadmap and more let's have a growth PM, maybe who even has a gaming or social media background who can think about how do we create features and change aspects of the product to create more engagement. And so I, I think what we're seeing is sort of the, a company today that's being built around bottom-up software, it, it, their first 30 hires I think actually looks pretty different. The composition of the business looks yeah. very different than a traditional SaaS company right. in the first 30 hires. What kinds of companies, to zoom out for a sec, uh, would have made sense as top-down investments but are unlikely to be bottoms-up or vice versa? Your types of companies or maybe types of subsectors or spaces that made more sense in the previous era or make sense now that didn't make sense? I'm just trying to get a better sense for what do I invest differently in a bottoms-up world than a top-down world? That's a, that's a great question. Let me lead off by saying I think one easy way to think about it is just to invert the trend that we're seeing, which is there are certainly spaces where individual users are, are not necessarily today seeing more buying power purchasing authority. Um, that could be a variety of fields. For example, the 
Perhaps the data they're working with is deeply sensitive. They're in a highly regulated industry. Perhaps um, worker turnover is very high, and therefore you, you don't get a lot of stickiness in product usage in that job. Um, any role where there isn't a lot of individuals to sell to who have budget authority or have the ability to take out a credit card and expense you know, $50 a month um, is probably not a, it's probably a difficult category to build a bottom-up business in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain categories where unless the whole company adopts, it doesn't provide much value. And that's, that, that's sort of a simple way to think about it where, you know, in a classic bottoms up uh, business, one person can get value, 10 people get more than 10x value. You know, that's the ideal use case where even if I have a collection of 50 individuals all working in their own silos, all using my software, that's great. But to the extent that one person in one department turns to 10 people in one department, then those 10 people are going to get some kind of compounding effect. That's ideally what you look for. But there are plenty of categories, and I think there will continue to be, where the level of change and adoption needs to be more you know, function-wide or enterprise-wide, where it's going to continue to be a top-down example. You know, we have a, we have a, a killer company called Clary. Uh, we invested you know, in the early days pre-revenue. And, and what they do is they essentially pull in data. They're focused on sales forecasting. So they pull in data from... Salesforce, from your email, from calendar, from Zendesk, from your website, all these signals to essentially use machine learning to predict which accounts are going to close and which ones are not. And then that data is used by sales management to try and prioritize, okay, which accounts do we think we're going to close that the system is telling us, uh-uh, these aren't, these aren't going to close, these ones are not on track, and here's why, so that they can dig in and, and, and really triage where they spend their time to try and bring, you know, bring, bring the dollars in. And what they've done is they've taken a system that today is also a, a corporate wide system that takes place in spreadsheets, you know, and, and, and the way the system works say at most fast growing, you know, companies is you get the data from Salesforce, you stick it into a, a, you know, BI type tool, you then spit it out in Excel. Then individual sales managers work with their salespeople to fill out Excel spreadsheets. Those spreadsheets get rolled back up. And now you have a forecast that is shared with the VP of sales, the CEO, and the CFO. So an incredibly cumbersome, complicated manual process that by its very nature is flawed and, and, and correct. And what ends up happening is sales leaders apply their own heuristics to try and compensate for that. The way I used to do it when I ran go-to-market trilogy was, you know, an account executive would say, okay, this you know, account's going to close 90% in blood. And the first thing I would do at the end of the forecast call is I call our legal department and I'd say, have you gotten red lines yet? Okay, you haven't. No chance this account's closing, you know, in the next five days. And Clary does that stuff automatically, you know, because it, it, it sees through the email and exchange servers that you've had a meeting with the customer, that a contract's been exchanged, that pricing was approved. All that stuff can actually be automatically gleaned and, and processed. But the point being is the reason why Clary works is it's you have to adopt the whole system. Yep. You know, if, if one person used Clary... It wouldn't be useful. The only reason the machine learning model works is it's collecting millions of signals and data points across the enterprise. Where in top down, you didn't have to have everybody using it. Well, or they it, would just mandate that everyone uses it. Yeah, no, I think it. Ha I think someone, someone like Clary has to be top down. Like it just can't be a bottoms up you know, type of sale because of that. And so, you know, it's an incredibly successful company. It's fast growing. You know, it's creating a lot of value. But that's one where it's unlikely that a bottoms-up player will come in and, and, and disrupt that space. I think where bottoms-up is most interesting, I think the really two categories where bottoms-up are interesting. I think one is where the incumbent is entrenched, 
not well liked, <clears throat> but like the example I used with Siebel and Salesforce, the company is just not willing basically burn that investment and start over. And so the only way you can to displace that is to nibble at the bottom and sort of work your way up and and disrupt from below. And so I think that, you know, Salesforce to, to Siebel is the classic case study um, in that SolarWinds, our company in network management versus HP and Computer Associates, these big IBM top-down solutions is another classic example of that. You know, Zendesk uh, and, uh, you know, vis-a-vis, uh, uh, -vis, you know, the, the, the remedies and, and, and you know, the, the support.com uh, of the world is another example. I think that's one category. But I think the more interesting category of the examples Kevin gave where this use case, there is no functional top-down equivalent. There is no like the right example that I shared earlier, there's there no one to sell top down to, you know, and the only way this category exists is because it's, it's bottoms up. Same thing with something like Slack, where there's nobody in, at a company who's in charge of communications. You know, there's, there's no owner of that. And so the only way this happens, you know, is some kind of bottoms up yeah. you know, type of approach. And do you think, um, let me just add a, a use case where I think we are trying to, we're seeing it emerge as a potential place where bottom up could be interesting, which is in markets with extremely high fragmentation where an outbound sales model would be difficult to scale. Um, and I think one of the areas we're seeing, you know, founders, uh, spend time in, um, is, is damn digital asset management, not crypto digital asset yeah. management, <laughs> but, uh, like videos and files and, and searching and storing that. And, you know, traditionally there hasn't been a lot of big companies in the space, partly because I think if you look at the structure of marketing agencies or you look at the structure of, um, magazine publishers, I think something like 60% of all marketing agencies have fewer than five employees on the science. And so, that structure where a lot of the seats available, the user seats in the industry, there's a lot of people who work in these places, but most of these companies aren't going to be bigger than a thousand, two thousand dollar contracts. And so, you know, you'd be very difficult to run an outbound sales organization, target all of them. You don't be able to target the big players. And then you might be stuck with a small piece of them with a relatively small addressable market. And I think the interesting question is, could you build a product that goes bottom up across all these players and reduce a sort of more marketing led transactional sale? And could you build a big company by actually addressing the piece of the market that traditionally couldn't be yeah. profitably sold to? That's sort of an interesting angle. And in fact, you could argue is where Slack is sort of ended up, which is interestingly enough in the organizations where top down bundling, you know, is really important to the CIO you know, Microsoft Teams seems like they tend to be winning some of those places. And organizations where people are paranoid about data security yeah. and that that drives decision making, you know, Mattermost just carved out a bit of a, a place. And so what's interesting is sort of, it seems like Slack actually where they're really dominant is is your small company, you're finding your first communication tool. No one, it, very few people that I know are, are yeah. going to Microsoft Teams. They're going to Slack. And so that's sort of been the space they've ended up carving out, which I think is actually an interesting uh, phenomenon. Well, you know, I think uh, to Kevin's point about fragmented or, 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 or seats that are hard to sell into, I think a good, another good example of this is, is SMB, you know, and I think that's, that's another place where you see an explosion of these kinds of opportunities. We have a company, a great company called Homebase that sells to very, very small businesses. These are mom and pop, uh, owners of, you know, service companies, retailers, restaurants, et cetera. You, you walk down Howard Street in San Francisco. Many of those establishments are home-based customers. And when we met, you know, John and Rishi, the founders, they had almost no monetization, but they had tens of thousands of these businesses that were using their product and they had no salespeople. You know, they, it was, you know, completely, you know, bottoms up, you know, type of product, uh, that was adopted and used and loved 
by tens of thousands of businesses. And now today, you know, there are you know hundreds of thousands of these businesses that are using the software, and it's it's all been done through you know a, a bottoms up and inbound model. And so what that's allowed them to do, interestingly enough, is as they've turned on monetization, their monetization pricing is disruptively low. So even when they do charge, they're able to charge a fraction of what you know the established players can charge because we're not paying for this massive uh, Salesforce that's you know doing outbound calling that's you know incredibly expensive and very inefficient you know by definition. Yeah. And so I, I think Kevin's point's a good one where you have these fragmented, hard to reach you know communities and customer bases where the bottoms up helps. I mean, international is another good example of that you know where a bottoms up product day one. In many in, in many categories can be international, you know, and and I, I think about back my days of trilogy when we set up our first office in Paris and then the UK and back in those days you had to hire uh, an account executive from that country because you know we were told that people in France won't buy from a German salesperson <laughs> and people in Germany won't buy from a French salesperson. So pretty soon we had fifteen different you know salespeople and one in each of these countries and it was incredibly expensive to try and scale that up and then japan required a joint venture and you know all this complexity with the bottoms up world you eliminate all that that's what's so powerful by the way another company we're in together although i did it in angel capacity is uh, voice ops oh yeah totally uh, that's an yeah. interesting company in the yeah, sales enablement space. yeah that's no, it's a great company yeah. definitely we're, we're super fired up about that's another trend actually we haven't touched on of just a voice and sms and you know, just how data there is sitting in, inside, you know, these CRMs. And you think about voice being, you know, such still a dominant form of interaction between businesses and, and customers. And that data is typically not captured, you know, and yes, salespeople are required to take notes after the call. You may have a call recording yeah. that no one listens to, but the fact that, you know, companies like voice ops are using AI to essentially extract the important metadata from those calls to essentially help drive customers through the sales process, coach salespeople on what to do and, and how to effectively sell is incredibly powerful. And so I think, you know, we're, we're going to see an explosion of opportunities yeah. now that, you know, the voice technology, voice recognition technology has gotten good enough. And thankfully, Google and Amazon and Apple have their own reasons to invest a ton of R&D in making that great. And I think that you know, is, is, is going to enable a lot of opportunities like voice ops. And others. What else should move to messaging? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. We've, um, we've got sort of a front row seat, uh, at several companies in a portfolio, including attentive, which is helping brands reach their customers through SMS and Alio, um, which is helping, um, employers reach, you know, potential recruits through SMS. Um, and, and what we're seeing is just the engagement is off the charts. I mean, it's interesting because if we draw the analogy, you know, in, in the crypto world, uh, you know, there have been a lot of people trying to build networks like Earn.com yeah. where you basically pay to reach somebody. Yeah. And I think what's kind of interesting is that SMS is basically an existing network that does that, right? It forces you to pay, I don't know, $0.10 cents per person per message. And so it, it holds some bar where there is inherently less noise in the channel. And it's now ubiquitous. We are in front of our phones and in front of our text messages, you know, maybe an order of magnitude more often than we are in front of our desktops and in front of our email. Um, and so I think certainly we are excited and interested to see where else, you know, messaging could be applied. I think there's, there's two ways to think about that. Number one is what business processes, business software, business communications could be, could be improved with uh, SMS. 
But I also think there is a, my suspicion is, and we're not, I'm not a consumer investor, that there's a consumer side to that, which is if more and more of the volume of SMS you receive is from trusted brands and communities that you're a part of, then will there be new services to help you manage all of that? I mean, you still can't mark unread in SMS, you know? And so to me, it seems there's, there's a set of things that probably could be done around that. Uh, yeah. If you believe the long term is is that more more communication will be messaging rather than totally uh, email. Z- zooming back out, we were talking about growth a little bit earlier. But how do metrics change in a bottoms up world in terms of what entrepreneurs should be thinking, but also in terms of how investors should be evaluating these businesses? It's funny because I just got out of a meeting with a seed stage founder. We're super psyched to back who's building a bottom up business basically enterprise search. Um, and we were just talking about how to benchmark it because there's there's all this content about like how to evaluate sales and marketing efficiency if you're a, like a traditional SaaS company, like magic number and and you know like what what growth rate do you need CAC to be payback. Yeah, yeah. And sort of the three, three, two, two yeah. sort of model of, of growing where you, you know triple, triple, double, double your um, ARR. But there's very little about how to think about what metrics to focus on. I, I think our view is and what we, in our, what I just discussed about, you know, 45 minutes ago with them is, I think what matters ultimately is, you know, activation, retention, and distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, more about sort of, sort of, sort of a more consumer model of thinking about it, which is, do we have our users seeing the value, building a habit, staying with us, and sharing the product with others? Um, and the exact way you measure each of those things is going to, is going to depend widely based on the exact product you have. You might have a product where the user uses it once a week and they love it and they're willing to pay for it. And that's success. You might have a product where the user uses it three times a day and that's a disaster in terms of engagement. Um, but I think every team needs to figure out what defines success, uh, there. And then I think what we're seeing is if you can build a habit, um, if people find your product indispensable to their productivity, and if people are, are loving enough to share it with others, then the monetization opportunity is self-evident. Yeah, and I, you know, I think as when you think about Series A SaaS, again, I think that using the traditional metrics, the most founders think about is I've got to get to a million dollars of ARR. You know, that that's sort of become you know gospel. You know, here in Silicon Valley, that okay, I get to a million of ARR, then I'm going to go out and raise my Series A. I think as Kevin points out, you know, in this bottom-up world, it's it's totally different, you know, and and that, you know, trying to shoot for a million of ARR may be counterproductive actually in terms of where you're investing your resources as a as a young startup. You know, if you're spending too much time worrying about monetization, it may cause you to take shortcuts or uh, make some bad decisions with regard to the product. And so certainly our coaching to seed stage founders that we're invested with is don't worry about the monetization. The thing you want to worry about is you know, really two things. I think the engagement that Kevin talked about uh, and and the spread of, of the product, but also that there is some dollar amount you can put on the value they're getting. And and I think the dollar amount on, on you know, the value they're getting, you know, is going to be part intuition at that early stage. Um, but it also does drive, you know, how many users, you know, you need to get to to get to sort of a meaningful, you know, size company. And, but worry less about actually necessarily hitting that million dollars of ARR. And so, yeah, having some evidence that yeah. people are willing to pay for it. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, the moment you ask someone to pay, they don't go away. You know, they, they, they're still retained, I think is useful, but hitting certain thresholds, I think is yeah. a lot less important, you know, than it was a few years ago. 
You mentioned you, you're excited about startups that are selling to SMBs. H- how do you advise more broadly what frameworks entrepreneurs should be thinking about in terms of picking the first customer segment and then maybe, you know, pricing against it? What is all SMBs or go enterprise or startups or? Well, I, I guess it depends on where they're starting from. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about how to pick, how to think even, about. Even voice house, for example, at the beginning, they were like, who's our first customer? You know? Yeah. <laughs> how do we think about that? Think yeah. About we talked a little bit earlier about some of the traits of a particular market opportunity that might make it more attractive to pursue in a top-down manner versus a bottom-up manner. And certainly, I think in a top-down world, you want to be rel- you probably want to be relatively prescriptive. I think what we see is in a top-down world where you're doing a lot of outreach, um, I just think it's important to be really thoughtful about the profiles of individuals you're reaching out to. And in your early sales pilot conversations, what we're seeing is experienced founders are being thoughtful about factors about each pilot, including, you know, size of the customer, um, you know, who is the buyer, what is the problem they're trying to solve. And ultimately, we think what we're seeing is by the time of the Series A, founders should have a good sense of pattern matching across type of role, problem they're trying to solve, and like the general size of the organization. Um, and, and frankly, it's hard to know day one. And I think what's more important is to have a hypothesis and to consistently spend the time and money and effort to go and validate that. I think with bottom-up, it's a little bit trickier because you almost don't want to be too prescriptive. You know, part of the part of the goal is that you're going to discover use cases you never thought about um, a priori. But it's probably worth thinking about, you know, a set of people who have some common, you know, use case problem they're trying to address Dropbox, like there's some sort of people who need file storage, you know, who might need file storage more. And there's probably some objective where it's important to, you know, at least test it with a representative set of users. You know, yeah. This enterprise search company we work with, you know, they thought about we want a few hundred people across various different, you know, functional areas, various profiles of individual, like what their educational background is. Um, size of the company they're in, geographic location, whether they know us as founders, as friends, or they don't know anything about the company at all. Um, and that, I think, has given them useful feedback to iterate on on kind of where the pockets of engagement yeah. they're seeing. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on you know what's the wave you're riding. And, and if I think about a number of our scaled SaaS companies, Gainsight, Optimizely, Clary, uh, they all started selling to startups. Now, why did they start selling to startups? Because startups represented the companies that were leading edge on the particular problem they were trying to solve. When you think about customer success, it was really the technology startups that were at the front end of the wave of thinking about customer success, investing in customer success, caring about customer success. And so those were the early gainsight customers. But today, it's the big companies that realize now, oh, we now need to go do that. Optimize, you think about A-B testing and experimentation, the culture of experimentation, that was something that most large companies weren't thinking about. But the startups were the ones that were pushing the thinking with the early adopters who realized that this idea of A-B testing should be not something you do you know, once a year, but should just be built into the culture of how you run your business and how you run your digital experience. And now it's become a mainstream you know, concept. Uh, Clary, again, you know, we shared that example. And so I think for uh, areas where you're riding a wave, we're likely startups are going to be at the front end of the wave, that's a great place to start. Even though recognizing those early customers may be, you know, 15, 20, $30,000, you know, ASP transactions. And eventually as you get to the bigger companies, you'll end up scaling that up to multi-million dollar transactions. I think that's one model. You know, I think second is, 
you know, there are companies, HubSpot's a good example of it. Our company, Homebase, is a good example of it. But they've just said, look, we want to serve the SMB. We're great at it. That's where we want to focus. We, we think we can build a $10 billion company just focus on SMB. We don't want to veer from that. And so for us, SMB is not a, you know, kind of uh, a stepping stone to get to somewhere else. It is where we want to live and where we want to play. And so I think that's a, an entirely different approach. Uh, and I think both work very well. I think the companies where your initial early customers are enterprises or big companies, that oftentimes can be the most challenging because you run the risk that you build a product that's only useful to 2,000 companies, you know, the very largest companies. And if those customers are your early adopters, it's very difficult to go from the top of the pyramid, the top 2,000 companies down. But it's much easier to say, okay, I've got something that works for a startup for customer success. Okay, now I've got something that works for a $100 million company that cares about customer success. Oh, now Cisco has embraced customer success. You know, I'm going to add those features that are needed. So I think that migration from the startup to the enterprise is something that works quite well. Starting at the enterprise, I think, can be can be tricky. Let's talk about indirect impact and what this means for, say, CIOs and CTOs and then new market opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think clearly one area that has been very interesting is this idea of spend management. You know, um, you, you live in a world that used to be top-down and centralized. You know, you centralized procurement departments and they have these systems from Ariba and SAP to manage the spend. You any contract that gets signed has to go through procurement where they have this, you know, highly vetted process to manage every single penny and every single dollar and every single negotiation. But now with this explosion of bottoms up, you know, you have actually large purchases being done for AWS, you know, for, you know, catering in your kitchens, for office supplies, for transportation that are all happening bottoms up in an, you know, an unmanaged way. And so as you think about the challenge that places on the CIO, on managing all of this software, the challenges it puts on the finance organization, you know, for managing where the spend is and how do you enable the creativity and, and essentially the decentralization that you want to have? You know, you want, you want to create a culture where somebody at the front lines doing information work can buy the tools they need. They're not stuck waiting for some approval, but how do you balance that with the ability to have, you know, visibility? the ability to reconcile it against budgets, the ability to make sure that those vendor payments are managed in a seamless way. You know, Kevin and I spent a lot of time in this category along with, you know, our, our partners, you know, Matt Harris and, and Kerry Goman, who, who lead our fintech practice. And that led us to, you know, an investment in Airbase that we announced recently uh, that, you know, we're you know, delighted we're in with you guys uh, at Village Global. And, you know, I think what was compelling to us about Airbase was, uh, the fact that, you know, Tejo, one, you know, incredible, you know, product visionary, you know, uh, great product founder, but he really went and thought about how should this process look for a modern company? You know, rather than tweaking the existing process, let's reinvent the entire process from the ground up. And he took literally a first principles approach to this problem of saying these, this is how companies are operating today. And by the way, if startups are operating this way today, this is how, you know, Ford Motor Company is going to operate you know, over the next five to 10 years. You know, the large companies are going to operate this way. And so how do we design a system that balances the decentralization required to get work done with the centralized visibility and spend management and, and vendor payments that you want to get the savings 
uh, as well as you know streamline the budgeting and reconciliation. And that's essentially what he's built. You know, there are other companies that are focused a little more on the CIO and helping the CIO track what software they have. You know, a terrific company that, that we're not investors in. You know, named Productive, that is you know essentially helping the CIO track and understand which products are being adopted, which ones are being used, which ones are not being used, you know, to allow them to manage their assets uh, internally as an IT organization. So I think you're seeing, you know, this first wave of startups that are helping modern companies manage the fact that everything's become <laughs> bottoms up. So it's, it's kind of funny. We spent the whole podcast, you know, talking about bottoms up software, but this is now like the first order derivative companies that are now, you know, taking advantage, you know, of this, of this tailwind. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the other things we think about that there are implications for is the kind of supply chain of building, selling, distributing bottom up software. Basically, if you believe more and more software will be built this way, then what are the implications for services that will support these types of organizations? And, um, you know, one way to think about it would be infrastructure, right? Like there are open source frameworks and maybe companies built around them that allow companies to offer um, like real-time collaboration in their products. You know, that's sort of Google Docs, so you and I can edit the same time experience. Um, there are, I think you're seeing an explosion in interest in uh, tools to help um, product teams be more productive, build, you know, closer to the customer request. You know, um, Product Board, you know, recently raised a big round is maybe an example of that. We have a company called Parlor, which helps product managers and customer-facing teams listen more closely to their user base. I think that there, you know, we touched on internationalization earlier. And I think to the extent that you believe that these software tools look more like, you know, consumer companies, I think one of the interesting things with the consumer companies is consumer online brands are international from day one. And, you know, consumerized business software, I think, is also international from day one. So should there be tools to help you day one be able to support users who want to use your product who are based in Russia or France or China? Um, I, this is sort of a whole tool chain that will get built that has this tailwind from the way that in which software is changing. Yeah. Let's talk about, or in the beginning of the podcast, you talked about, uh, robotics and you talked about, uh, supply chain. Maybe let's talk about the biggest places you guys are looking at in, in those areas or, or what's most interesting to you about, about those areas. Yeah. You know, we, we, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we had a, a good fortune, um, you know, early in my career at Bain to, to, you know, meet a founder named McMounts who, had worked at, at Webvan and, and actually worked in the distribution center at Webvan. And Webvan was kind of the Instacart predecessor that raised a billion dollars and, and went under. And the reason they went, went under is that $100 bag of groceries actually cost $30 to pack. And when you think about that $100 bag of groceries, you know, having a gross margin of 10 or $20, you know, the math didn't work. And, uh, and that really was the, um, you know, the, the genesis of, of Kiva Systems. And, you know, what was interesting about Mick and I think you know robotics has had a lot of funding and and they're unfortunately there haven't been a lot of successes and Kiva is you know certainly one of the successes and I think what's interesting about Kiva and I think the insight that Mick had was he looked at the problem and he said you know what there are parts of this problem that robots can solve today that don't require breakthrough R and D and there are parts of this problem that robots probably can't do for ten years or maybe twenty years and. The way he explained it to us back in 2004 was he said this idea that a robot can look at a shelf of items and grab something that might be a broom, it might be a resistor chip, it might be a t-shirt, you know, it might be a, a bag of diapers and know how to grab it, where to grab it, you know, what the weight's going to be, 
and pick it up and, and put it into a box? He said, that's a really hard problem. And in fact, here we are, you know, 16 years later and Amazon is, is funding, you know, continues to fund robotic challenges around robotic picking. And Mick said, that's too hard to solve. So I'm going to have a human do the picking. But the part that a robot's great for is moving the goods around the warehouse. And he said in a typical warehouse at, at Webvan or at Amazon, the average fulfillment worker is spending 70 to 80% of their time walking to the shelf and only 20% of the time actually picking, scanning, and packing. So that's really what led to the insight at Kiva, which is let's use the robots, do what robots do well, which is find the item and move it to the worker and then have the worker pick it. And by having the, the um, robots do the finding and having the, the inventory sit on mobile shelving as opposed to fixed shelving, you also essentially converted atoms into bits where just like you today, I have no idea where my data is. I don't, it's not on you know my hard drive on my, you know, on my desk or on my laptop. It's sitting somewhere in the cloud. I don't care as long as when I need that data, it shows up. And, you know, uh, companies like Amazon and others have, and Google have built all this great technology to cache what I need most, you know, closest so that I get that high performance stuff I use less often, maybe further away, maybe on cheaper storage. That's effectively what Kiva did, which is the stuff that's high frequency, you know, the week before Easter, the Easter candy is sitting right near the pick workers. (laughs) The day after Easter, the system intelligently would figure out, I can put that shelf all the way in the very back of the warehouse because no one's ordering Easter candy the day after Easter. And so that's the beauty of, of that system. And I think what distinguished Kiva was that really was an integrated software system where the robots were an enabler, yeah. but were not the heart and soul of the company. And, you know, a more recent investment we've made that I think is a lot of parallels to Kiva is, is Ike. And, you know, Ike is, is one of the pioneers in autonomous trucking. And, you know, when we looked at the world of autonomy and we looked at point-to-point highway uh, long haul autonomy versus city driving. Our view, after you know digging into the space, and certainly informed a lot by our Kiva experience, was city driving autonomy reminded us of using trying to solve the problem of using robots to pick, you know, an item, um, you know, from a shelf. That you could, pro- it's easy to solve the first eighty percent of use cases, yeah. but the next twenty percent of corner cases are impossible. And point to point highway driving, we concluded, as did the Ike team that it was probably a couple orders of magnitude simpler and, and therefore more solvable in a time window that, that made sense. And what was what's interesting about Ike and, and the parallel to Kiva is they still rely on humans to take the truck from the highway to the warehouse. You know, in many ways that last mile is similar to the Kiva system of having the last pick be by human and have the robots do them but you know do the stuff in between. But Going across the country on highways for days on end where, you know, human drivers are limited by the number of hours they can work, you know, limited by sleep, certainly, you know, challenges with boredom, being away from home, that actually is better suited, you know, for robots. And there's, you know, extreme shortage in this country for, for drivers, you know, for those reasons. Um, and so if you could create a hybrid system where the humans are doing the, you know, portion from the highway to the to the warehouse and then use robots for that long haul piece, I think that's really powerful. And so I think we look at robotics investments and we really think about founders and companies that are taking more of a systems approach yeah. where the hardware is, you know, a necessary enabler, but is not right. sort of the thing unto itself that it's selling. And so the I, I would say there are a lot of great founders we've met that are sort of taking product X that's that's a piece of hardware that's 
not automated and turning it into automated, we find those a lot less yeah. you know interesting for those reasons. How, how about supply chains and industrials? Well, you know, I think what's interesting about supply chain is that if you go back to the '90s, and you know, probably most entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley couldn't answer this question, but if you if you interviewed folks in Silicon Valley, so what was the most valuable technology company in the 1990s? My guess is probably no one could name it, but it was Dell Computer. And why was Dell the most valuable company in the 1990s? Because not because their innovation was a supply chain innovation. They figured out that if they could create a supply chain that was build to order, as opposed to actually building a bunch of SKUs and sticking it in the channel, that was better for the customer and it was actually more cost effective. Where I, as a consumer, could go online, configure what I wanted, and have it shipped to me in a day or two, versus having to buy whatever model was you know sitting in the channel. And that was their innovation, and, and actually led to this insane wave in the late '90s called reengineering and you know reengineering the corporation. And this guy named Michael Hammer created that that whole lingo. And and C-suite executives would fly down to Austin to meet with Dell to understand their innovation. Now, if we fast forward to the last 20 years. You know, probably the, the, among the one or two fastest appreciating companies in the history of humankind is Amazon. And if you look at Amazon, you know, yes, it's an e-commerce company, but really their innovation, it's a supply chain company. I mean, their front end website has not changed in a decade, in 15 years, maybe. I mean, you think about all the innovations in the early 2000s, one click ordering, product recommendations. You know, if you like this, you'll like that. There's been nothing actually on the front end of the website, but all the innovation has been the fact that you know, I, I can get Amazon Prime. I can click on anything, get in two days or in one day, you know, and, and, and the fact they've now vertically integrated where they're now even doing the last mile delivery. I think that really shows the power of supply chain. And, and so I think what you're seeing now is companies in every industry that have any kind of physical product, you know, that they have to move around are realizing that this is the key to long-term success, that thinking that reinventing their supply chain is important. And when you think about the systems that have been built historically for managing supply chain, SAP and you know, Oracle and 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 these systems from the 90s, the data fundamentally is not real time. You know, it's 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 latent data that is by definition wrong. And how do you convert that into a real-time system? And this is where you know Forkites is really interesting, where that initial use case I mentioned was. Okay, on time arrival. Do I know if my truck is, is going to be there on time or not? But what's really powerful is we now actually have a real time view of the supply chain because we know at Forkites that this truck has left your main distribution center. Because we're integrated into your SAP system, we know you have this much inventory in that distribution center, but some subset of that inventory just left because it went on that truck. And we, we also know that you have a truck coming into that warehouse with this much inventory. So we now have a more accurate view of your inventory in your distribution center and at your customer than SAP does because we have the actual real-time view. And so I think when you think about cloud and machine learning and all these technologies, what better application than supply chain? Because here's the other thing about supply chain where cloud is really powerful. You know, we Coke is one of our customers, Coca-Cola at Four Kites. And Walmart Canada is one of our customers. And Alcoa is one of our customers. Now, interestingly enough, Coca-Cola uses... Uh, Forkite's technology to see which trucks, you know, are headed to Walmart and are they on time or not. Um, now, Walmart says, this, hey, we're a customer of yours and we're using Forkite's to think about our trucks going to our distribution centers. But we'd love to know if the Coke truck is showing up at our distribution center, if it's running late or not, because we have people in our D.C. waiting for that truck to unload it and pack it up. So if we know it's running two hours late, that'd be really useful for us. Now, Alcoa is a supplier to Coke. 
And Coke says, hey, I'd love to know when the Alcoa trucks come to my distribution center. So you think about this power of cloud. And now, you know, a company like Forkites is in a position to really offer cross-enterprise service. That would never happen in the world of on-prem where you'd have to physically integrate Alcoa's on-prem system with Coca-Cola's on-prem system with Walmart's. Never going to happen. But in the world of cloud, it's now finally possible. And so I think, you know, the combination of the fact that companies are realizing supply chain is the key to long-term success and Dell in the 90s, Amazon in, in the more recent era have been bellwethers for that combined with cloud machine learning now making this, you know, finally possible. I think we see that as, as super exciting. So we have a whole, you know, array of, of companies in, in supply chain, a company called ShipBob that, you know, is, is, you know, the leading provider of uh, fulfillment services for, you know, direct to consumer brands. You know, we have a company called Vention, which, you know, think of Vention as, um, you know, an industrial Ikea or Lego set that allows you to create these massive automation cells. And, and that's, a, by the way, another example of a bottoms up company where I could be an engineer inside of a Tesla factory and I, I'm constantly iterating our factory line. And I realize, you know what, this particular line could be automated if I had, you know, an inspection robot sitting on, you know, some kind of automation cell that, that goes in, you know, three dimensions where I can inspect this particular part. They can, that engineer can go online go to Vention.io, design the system in a matter of, you know, minutes and click on a button and have a package arrive the next day with directions like you'd get at Ikea on how to assemble this $30,000 piece of equipment that normally would take six months uh, to, to go make happen. And so we're, we're super excited about our, our portfolio uh, in supply chain and industrial automation, you know, Ike and Invention, ShipBob, Forkites, but we think there's a lot more to do, you know, and so it's an area we're continuing to spend quite a bit of time and energy. Yeah, if I frame it, it maybe as one opportunity and two risks to think about. I mean, the opportunity, as Audrey said, is clearly that there's this behemoth, you know, Amazon's a highly successful company that has raised the table stakes for supply chain capabilities. And so how can founders help various people throughout the supply chain, all the way down to the ends of raw material suppliers, all the way up to the retailers. How can we help them raise their game? Um, and then I think the two risks that we often see in this space uh, that are interesting to think about, you know, one, te- you know, some people pursue tech-enabled services. And what, what we are sure about, what we'd love to learn more about from founders is, does tech-enabled service truly provide technology leverage, or do you ultimately become a, you know, a slightly better services company? I think the other big challenge in supply chain is you do have a lot of, you know, very entrenched incumbents. And it's a sector of the economy where you tend, if you tend to go head on against the incumbent transportation management system, warehouse management system, et cetera, these are, these are big opportunities, big software markets, and there's a lot of budget to be unlocked. But the reality is they often come with really long sell cycles and um, with a lot of uncertainty. And so what are ways that sort of people are finding to have a higher velocity business where you know, you're not relying on huge um, deals to, to grow the company? Yeah. Uh, let's close with, with, uh, with a couple closing questions. One is uh, what are a couple of areas by which or non-obvious areas that you are looking in terms of requests for startups, less obvious patterns that you find interesting. And uh, if we're having this conversation five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, how do you expect uh, things to be different? Or, or what's one prediction you have in terms of how the fundamental structure of how uh, business software is evolving might, might be different than, than it is today? Look, in terms of companies, we're excited to meet, you know, Eric, you, you and us all know that 
the valley these days is Gaga for you know low code, no code, product led, bottom up software, you know machine learning infrastructure. Look, we we are excited about those topics as well. We want to meet those too. I think the the more uh, I think the stuff we're seeing where there's fewer people as focused on it. One is kind of the the implications of a growing economy of you know software that sells to the user. Um, Airbase falls in this world, um, but also some we talked about about the, the supply chain, you know, infrastructure for building these products, tools for marketing and distributing these products. You know, if community becomes so important, community management software. The second theme that we're seeing is, and, and that our partner Matt talks all about, is is the is embedded fintech. So you know, more and more tools own the customer relationship. And I saw this in our world of lending at Fundera, where you have companies like Square, which are in some ways business software company selling a, a you know, POS software, but now they have access to the customer relationship and proprietary customer data, and they are well positioned to make loans. You know, Square Capital has done several billion dollars of lending in a very short period of time. Um, and so we're interested in other ways to either enable um, financial services to be embedded as a developer tool, and we're also interested in novel ways in which um, financial services enables the unlocking of a particular market opportunity um, you could put, you could argue that companies like Open Door, Fair, they're truly offering a financial service, but that is creating supply and demand for a marketplace, for example. Um, and then lastly, you know, you and I touched on this earlier in the conversation, which is SMS is hot, you know, where it's interesting to see kind of the engagement differences and what are the implications for other business software categories that could leverage this opportunity and what are the implications for consumer products to help uh, all of us yeah. manage this volume that's coming in the future. Speaking of the future. Take us home, I just... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Kevin, come on, you, you stole my thunder here. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, well, I, I do think that this idea that, you know, one of the implications of software being easier to build and this proliferation of companies and startups is that core application software in many ways is being commoditized. Um, and, and, you know, as you think about just the fact with AWS and, and others, you know, the, the tools to build it are, are dramatically lower. And then just the sheer number of people who are founders today that are building things means, you know, what used to be kind of a unique idea in, in a new application space now is, is, is feeling much more commodity like. So what are the implications? And I think embedded fintech is one example. I think this idea that the way you make money as a software company over time, you know, was, you know, in the nineties upfront license plus 20% maintenance, you know, in the last 20 years it's monthly or quarterly or yearly, you know, SAS fees. I think in the future, it may be actually you're not, you know, charging anything for the software and we're going to make money on data. We're going to make money on FinTech. We're going to make money on marketplace. And so we are seeing emerging companies, certainly many in the FinTech world, but many that actually don't have any kind of fintech element where their monetization strategy is through some derivative effect of lots of people using their software. And so I think you're going to see a lot of interesting creative models. And I don't know if it'll end up being, you know, a standard approach like SaaS, but I think we're going to have to develop some new lingo, I think, for this next 10 years on a set of software companies that aren't on-prem, licensed and maintenance. They aren't pure cloud SaaS, but there's some hybrid way to deliver a hybrid way that the customer gets value in a hybrid way that, you know, the, the, the software vendor gets paid. And I think that's, I, I think you're starting to see the early companies innovate on that front. And I think in some ways it's incredibly disruptive. As I mentioned before, in the Salesforce example, they said, you know, that 20% maintenance you're paying Siebel, that contract you, you bought 10 years ago, 
you know, we'll just charge you for that 20%. Now you can say, you know, that, that $2 million a year you're paying for that piece of application software, we'll actually charge you nothing for it. You know, you don't have to pay us anything for that and get value out of it. And by the way, yes, we need to make money, but here are all these other ways that we're going to make money. And so I think you're going to see that as, you know, an interesting uh, new wave. And, and Matt, as Kevin said, you know, talks a lot about it with payments and, and so forth. But I think there are, you know, a whole array of ways that you can start monetizing this, this technology. So I'm super excited about it. Like I said, I've, you know, my, my first software company was, was in the late eighties, you know, trilogy in the nineties, SaaS for the last 20 years. I, you know, I don't think we're done yet. There's, there's definitely going to be a new model. My guests today have been Ajay Agarwal and Kevin Zhang of Bain Capital Ventures. Ajay, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's great. Great conversation. Thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 